Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you for leading on Wednesday nights. Thank you for leading this morning. We are concluding our series today in Paul's letter of Colossians. So if you'll be finding that letter, we'll be in the fourth chapter and we'll start in verse 7 and conclude this letter. Sometimes, probably more often than I would want to admit here, I say in sort of an exasperated way, the one word, people. You ever say that? Just when people are frustrating, people are on your nerves, people are not doing what you think they ought to do or acting like you think they ought to act. And so we just say, people. You know, ministry would be fun if it weren't for the people. I could be fine at work if it weren't for my coworkers. I'd have a good time at home if it weren't for my spouse. People are frustrating sometimes. They can be discouraging. There are different personalities, different opinions, different emotions and passions. All of these and much more make it very difficult sometimes to simply get along with people. On the other hand, people can also be very encouraging and very helpful. They can combine with us their gifts and talents, often the gifts and talents that we don't possess, and combined, we can accomplish so much more together than we ever could apart. The fact of the matter is, most of us need the help of others. We were designed to be that way. Very few, if any of us, can live in isolation, and fewer still can live in isolation and actually have some sort of success or accomplishment in life because we need the support of others. And sometimes we need to be reminded of this, especially in our age of division, in our culture and in our society where more and more we are divided over many other things and we are so quick to cast people off to remove them from our sphere of life over the smallest of disagreements and the slightest of failures. That is also true in the church and in ministry where we, are, where we find it difficult to get along with other people who we work with and fellowship with in the body of Christ. And that's why the next sermon series I'm going to do after Colossians is a series on the basic orthodox beliefs of our faith, those tier one doctrines that we must believe in order to be genuine believers. And the reason I'm doing that is because we have raised so many other things to tier one beliefs, and we are dividing over the smallest of things, breaking fellowship with fellow believers over minor details of faith and practice, that we need to be reminded what are those ultimate beliefs that we must hold dear in order to be believers in Jesus Christ. But that's for the coming weeks. Today, I want to talk about our partners in ministry. That's our title today, Partners in Ministry. Now, when we think about partners, we normally think about 
other groups that we might work with. We think about partnering with other churches, other organizations, perhaps even other denominations. Maybe we talk about some parachurch ministry and, and our need to partner together with them for whatever we want to accomplish. But I'm not using the phrase partners in ministry today in that way. I'm talking instead about us. I'm talking about you and I partnering in ministry. I'm talking about what we even saw just exhibited, people we work with on a Wednesday night, our co-teacher in Sunday school, the person we serve alongside in ETC or the nursery. I'm talking about the people we work with and serve with and fellowship with within the body of Christ. How do we get along with those people? So that rather than division, we can work side by side for the cause of the gospel, even when we might have a personality conflict, or even when we might have a difference of opinion about some cultural or social issue, or even a, a doctrinal issue. How do we get along with one another in the body of Christ so that we can partner with one another for the good of the gospel? Well, as we finish this book of Colossians, we are reminded that Paul was not in this alone. Sometimes we get the mistaken idea that Paul was this lone ranger Christian who was going from city to city, preaching the gospel and planting churches and sort of doing it all by himself. Because he is the one who is writing these letters, although we've seen he's got a co-writer here. But because we we associate his name with these letters, we often get the idea that he was going alone in all of this. But that is not the case, and we're going to see that today. Paul had a, a multitude of people who were surrounding him, encouraging him, supporting him in the work of the ministry. And the same is true today. I recognize that I'm usually the one in the pulpit but this church cannot exist without hundreds of people serving, some of them behind the scenes, some of them whose names you never know. But no matter what they do or how they serve, they are essential to the work of the ministry. So let's look at Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to be introduced to a, a bunch of people that are, that are working with Paul. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, you probably recognize that this is not the favorite passage of most preachers. Uh, this is not the go-to that we, we use on the special occasions. I dare say that if you have a life verse, it is not found here. Now, that's not to say it's not important, but it is basically the closing of this letter. Paul is simply adding the names of those who are with him to the greeting that he is sending to the church and giving some final instructions along the way. I mean, we still do the same kind of thing. When you meet someone on the street and you begin a conversation and some third person comes up, sometimes the person will say to you, hey, when you see Joe, will you tell him that I said hello? That's what Paul's doing here. He is sending the letter to the church with Tychicus and Onesimus, and he is sending along his greetings. We sometimes do it at the end of a letter if we ever write one anymore. Maybe we add it to the PS of an email. Sometimes in more formal situations, we, we do this. If you've ever been to a, an associational meeting or a, a state convention of Baptists, they sometimes have this line on the program that says fraternal greetings. Frankly, it's a waste of time, but it's on the program. And what that means is somebody's going to get up and they're going to say, I greet you on behalf of such and such association. It's a way of saying you're not the only group. There's another group over here that's doing something very similar, and we are working here together for the cause of the gospel. That's what Paul is doing in this text. And so you say, well, what can we learn? What can we apply from a, a text like this? If this is just the greetings in the close of a letter, what can we learn? Well, some might say not much of anything. And so we treat this oftentimes like we do the genealogies in the Bible. We glance over them or skip over them, but don't pay much attention to them. But I remind you that these verses are the inspired Word of God, as are all the other verses in the Bible. And therefore, I do believe there is some benefit here. And so what I want to do is pull out some principles this morning that are either stated or implied in these verses. Rather than walk verse by verse and tell you exactly everything we know about every person mentioned, and some would be very few because there are some people in these verses that we know nothing else about other than what Paul says here. But rather than giving you a mini biography on everybody that's in here, and we'll do a little bit of that, I want to pull out some principles that we can use in partnering together in ministry. And the first is this. We need to recognize one another. By that, I simply mean that we need to acknowledge that there are other people in the gospel ministry, in the work that we are doing as a church, and their goal is the same goal as ours. Their gifts might be different. Their ministries might be different. Their type of service might be vastly different from ours, but their goal is the same, and we are working together in this. 
as I said a moment ago, sometimes we get the mistaken idea that Paul is this solo figure, that he is a loner in the ministry, a solitary figure working hard on his own. But that is certainly not the case. In this letter, we see him giving greetings from at least eight people who are with him in Rome. This is the second most people that he mentions in his letters. The most is in Romans, where some 26 people are mentioned. Here there are eight who are with him, and there are references to more who are in Colossae. Epaphras, as we learned at the very start, was the man who was sent from Colossae to Rome to bring Paul news of what was going on in the church, precipitating the writing of this letter. He was also, in all likelihood, the founder of this church. And then we have Aristarchus, who in some way, if this is to be taken literally rather than figuratively, he is in some way actually sharing in Paul's imprisonment. Perhaps it was a, a loose imprisonment where Paul's friends were allowed to come and go. And Aristarchus is there serving alongside Paul. Luke is mentioned. You know who he is. He is the Gentile physician. We know he's a physician because of this text who wrote not only the book of Luke, but also the book of Acts, meaning he's the writer of nearly one quarter of the New Testament. And he is with Paul as well, probably giving him some, uh, meeting his physical needs. But notice some of the wording used. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we see the phrase, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Look at verse 10. There we find the word fellow prisoner. In verse 11, it is fellow workers. All of these words bring out the truth that these men and others were working with Paul in the spread of the gospel. And this fact has not been lost on the apostle Paul. He knew that his effectiveness in preaching and planting churches was contingent not only on God, of course, and the work of the Holy Spirit, but contingent upon the many other people who were working with him. But there are even more than these who are with him in Rome. In fact, the church in Colossae is playing a part. After all, they had sent Epaphras. And then not only the church in Colossae, but we also have the church in, in Laodicea and the church in Hierapolis. And we said week one that these three cities, who, who were, which were very close in proximity, made up a, a tri-city area in the Lycus Valley. And so Paul is sending greetings to all of them. And he mentions that Epaphras was struggling in his prayers, not just for the church in Colossae, but for all three churches. And then he even tells them, and this is unique to the book of Colossians, but he tells them to swap letters. He says, what I want you to do is, is I want you to, to hear what I have to say. And that would be in a, in a church setting. That is, they would gather together and someone would stand up and read this letter that we've been studying. And he says, after you've done that, I want you to take that letter to the church in Laodicea. And when you take that church and when you take that letter to the church in Laodicea, when you come back, bring the letter that I sent to them and read that in your congregation. Now you say that that creates a little bit of a problem because we don't know of a letter to the church in Laodicea. And Bible scholars have debated this for a long time now. So there's one of two things that are likely here. Either it is a letter that Paul wrote that has now been lost to us. We know that's the case with some of the correspondence in Corinthians. 
There was more than First and Second Corinthians that we have. Some of it was lost. So either the letter to Laodicea has been lost, or some conclude that it is none other than the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians was a circular letter. That is, it was not written to one specific church. It was written to a region and expected to be circulated among that region. These three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, were so closely tied together that anything that was going on in one was likely to be going on in another. Anything like the false teaching that affected one city and the church in that city was likely to affect the others. So we don't know the names of all of the people in these churches. But Paul makes it very clear that he recognizes the support of the people in those churches. And we need to recognize that we are not in this alone. No matter how high profile your position might be or how low profile your position might be, we are in this together. Now, I don't have to tell you that something is starting back up this week, right? College football is starting back up this week. And your beloved Tennessee balls play on Thursday night of this week. So we're going to call a prayer meeting on Thursday night. And none of you would show up because you're going to be at home watching the game. Now, we know that a football team, do you know how many scholarships there are in Division I football for every team? There are 85 scholarships on a Division I football team, 85 men who are on that team. And then you've got to add to that there are walk-ons, there are coaches, I don't know how many coaches they have, there are graduate assistants, there are, there are all kinds of support people. My point is simply that we know that a football team, when you watch that team on Thursday night, you know that there are hundreds of people that make that happen. Now the quarterback, whoever that's going to be, is going to get a large share of either the glory or the criticism. For whatever happens Thursday night and beyond, the quarterback is going to get either a lot of praise or a lot of criticism. He's going to shoulder a lot of the responsibility for the team. But we know that it's not just him. As I said, there are hundreds of people that are making that possible, which is why I never like it. And I've told you this before. I never like it when I hear the announcers say that running back got those yards on his own. No, he didn't. That's never the case. There are always 10 other people on the field who have made whatever he did possible in some way. And there are hundreds of people behind the scenes. Some of those guys will never see the football field on a Thursday night or Saturday. But they're out there practicing day after day, helping those who are on the field become better with their practice. My point is we know that that's a team sport. And we need to understand that Christianity, the church, is a team effort. We need to recognize that there are many people, many of them behind the scenes, who are working just as hard and just as faithful and just as diligent as we are to proclaim the gospel in our community and beyond. The Apostle Paul is a household name to many. But some of these people mentioned here, as I said, we know nothing more about. Their efforts, their, their background has been lost to us in history, but it was not lost on the Apostle Paul. He recognized the efforts of everybody else involved. As Paul says elsewhere, if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. If one member of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. So very simply, the first principle in partnering in ministry is this. We need to recognize one another. We are not in this alone. We are working together. Secondly, we need to encourage one another. 
Just a casual reading of this text reminds us that Paul spoke words of encouragement about virtually everybody he mentions. He doesn't just say their name. He adds qualifying statements to their names as a way of encouraging them. Descriptive phrases that tell us something about the character of the individual. Except for one, and that's Demas. And if you know your Bibles, Paul later says of Demas that he has forsaken me because he loved the world more than he loved ministry. And so the fact that he doesn't give any description here might give us a clue that there's already some concerns about this man. But everybody else, Paul gives descriptive phrases. And can you imagine how encouraging it would have been as they're bringing this letter to the church and as they read the letter out loud and as they hear their names and the descriptive phrases that go with those names. As Tychicus and Onesimus are traveling with these letters in their hand, how much it must have thrilled their hearts to know that Paul was encouraging them in the work of the ministry. Paul often began his letters with words of encouragement, and here he ends his letter by writing words of commendation for those he is working with. And when we encourage one another, it goes a long way in reinvigorating us for further service. Too often we are good at spotting the weaknesses of other people, letting them know when they have failed us, letting them know when they've not lived up to our expectations, rather than encouraging them when they do. Look at verse 8. Not only does Paul give words of encouragement here, but in verse 8 he says, This is the very purpose. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He's sending Tychicus back to Colossae with this letter for the express purpose of bringing them encouragement and comfort. And I remind you of where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's in a Roman prison cell, and his concern is not for his own comfort primarily, but his concern is for the encouragement of the other believers. And that ought to tell us how important this is. Verse 11, you see, we see this again in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. He's talking about the three Jews that he's just mentioned, who are, who are with me, and they are a comfort to me. These three men, most of the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with Paul because he had abandoned Judaism in their minds and he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but these three have been a great comfort to him. So this great defender and proclaimer of the faith is not only encouraging other people, but he's acknowledging that he needs encouragement as well. Which leads me to the conclusion that there is no one here who does not need encouragement. If the Apostle Paul needed it, I can tell you I need it, and I can assure you, you need it as well. When we live our lives mostly hearing negative things or reading negative things, we're reminded this morning that we need words of encouragement. And having said that, some of you are thinking to yourself, you're exactly right. I need someone to encourage me, but frankly, nobody's doing that would encourage you and I hope they do but here's what I want to say to you if you're sitting back saying I want someone to encourage me my question to you is this are you encouraging someone else because the fact is that once you start encouraging someone else number one that will lift your spirit in the process as you give yourself to encourage other people it will by its very nature encourage you but here's what will often happen 
As you become an encourager to other people, they will in turn begin encouraging you. So don't sit back and say, I can't wait for someone to encourage me. You become the encourager. And then you'll see that not only will you be encouraged, but others will encourage you as well. And that's something every church body needs. We don't need more criticism. We don't need more discouragement. We don't need more pointing of fingers and reminding of failures. We get enough of that. We need people, we need partners in ministry who will encourage one another. In verse 17, Paul instructs the church to encourage Archippus to faithfully continue his ministry. We don't know what that ministry was. We don't know what he's been told to do that evidently, for whatever reason, he's been unable to do or perhaps even unwilling. We don't know that. But Paul says to the collective body, I want you to get behind Archippus and encourage him to fulfill his ministry. So we need to recognize one another. We need to encourage one another. And this third one, these are all general principles. This third one we've already talked about, but we bring it up again, and that is we need to pray for one another. We've seen it early on in the letter. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of intercessory prayer. That is praying for one another. That's just a big word that means we pray for the needs of other people. In this section, prayer is not so much commanded as it is displayed. Look at verse 12. Epaphras is said to labor or struggle in prayer on behalf of the three churches in the Lycus Valley. That word struggling implies far more than a casual concern. Epaphras is wrestling in prayer with God that the believers in these churches would grow in their faith and follow God in all of his will and in all circumstances. And we are reminded that prayer is indeed a struggle, which may just be one of the reasons why we have such a hard time doing it. But Paul understands that he's in a spiritual battle along with his companions. And this spiritual battle means it necessitates that prayers be offered. And who knows the impact of Epaphras' prayer on behalf of these three churches? Who knows the impact that you and I could have for this church and others if we would struggle in prayer like this? So let me issue a challenge this morning to all of us. The next time you feel compelled to talk about someone else, to criticize someone else, why don't we instead pray for that person? Why don't we offer them words of encouragement and instead of talking to someone else about them, we go to God and talk to God about them. That'd be a whole lot more productive than what we're used to. Now let me mention one other thing about praying for one another. I talked about this two weeks ago. We talked about the importance of knowing the issues that we're praying for. And then I, I used the, the illustration of me taking the trip to Central Asia and seeing what our missionaries do because one of the reasons for doing that was to have more knowledge of, of what they do so that I could more effectively pray for them and communicate that to you. And we see the same thing here. In verses 7 through 9, three times Paul mentions that Tychicus and Onesimus are coming to Colossae to inform the believers about what is going on in Rome. And isn't it safe to assume that one of the major reasons he's informing them of what's taking place in Rome is so that they can pray for him. And then look at verse 18, how he ends this letter. He says, remember my chains. 
And that's, again, not just by way of information, but I think it's clear to, that, to, to assume here that Paul is saying, I want you to remember my situation so that you can pray for me. Paul was not ashamed to share that he needed their prayers. He was not ashamed or embarrassed to say that his ministry needed them praying for him. And we need to understand that about our own lives. We are not mind readers, and gratefully so. I'm glad I'm not a mind reader because I would not want to know what you're thinking right now. The fact that we're not mind readers means that if we want other people praying for us, we need to share with them our prayer needs. Now, that does not mean that you have to tell the church everything about your life. But it does mean you ought to have a few trusted people in your life, a few trusted fellow believers whom you can share with and know that they will pray for you, even as you pray for them. I mean, it's a simple truth. Praying for one another demands that we're open and honest with one another about what our prayer needs are. So we recognize that we're not in this alone. We recognize one another. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. And finally, we forgive one another. As believers, we have been forgiven a tremendous debt by Christ. And therefore, there is no reason why we cannot forgive one another. You say, well, where do you get that in these verses? Well, look at the second half of verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Well, where does that say anything about forgiveness? Well, who is Mark? John Mark. John would be his uh, one name, his, his Jewish name, and Mark be his Roman name. If you know the book of Acts, you know that John Mark, here we're told he's a cousin of Barnabas, and Barnabas was the man who initially vouched for Paul, and then we saw this last Wednesday night. Barnabas was also the man who, when he's in ministry in Antioch, goes down to Troas, or, I'm sorry, Tarsus. He, go down, he goes down to Tarsus and gets Paul. This is before Paul's in ministry. So he gets Paul from, from his hometown of Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch, basically beginning Paul's public ministry. So this Barnabas is a cousin of John Mark. Now back to the text here. So they go with Paul on that first missionary journey. You remember that? And somewhere along the way, John Mark goes home. He deserts them. We don't know the reason. Maybe he's homesick. Maybe it's just harder than he thought. Some speculate that John Mark didn't agree with uh, Paul's message of grace to the Gentiles. We don't know why he went home. All that we know is that he did. And then when they began their second missionary journey, Barnabas, son of encouragement, Barnabas says to Paul, let's give John Mark another try. And Paul says, absolutely not. I'm not taking him with me. And these two men split. They don't go on a missionary journey together because of their disagreement over John Mark. Barnabas takes John, Mark, and Paul takes Silas, and they go on separate journeys. But now we're some 12 years later, and John Mark is with Paul in Rome. We don't have a record of their reconciliation, but obviously it occurred somewhere along the way. Some 12 years later, John Mark is back in ministry and back with Paul. And in another epistle, Paul actually says, bring John Mark. He is a help to me in ministry. I wish we had an account of their reconciliation, but we do not. We simply know that somewhere in those dozen years, 
These two men had gotten together and Paul had forgiven him for deserting them on the first, first missionary journey. They had reconciled and now they are working side by side again. An example of forgiveness. Onesimus is another example. I've told you this before. He was the runaway slave of Philemon. Again, the book of Philemon is also being written and carried with them as they go back to Colossae. Philemon was a member of the church in Colossae. And his slave had run away, somehow met Paul in Rome and been saved. There's even some indication, at least some scholars believe, that Onesimus not only ran away, but perhaps stole from his boss as he was leaving. And yet look at verse 9. Paul calls Onesimus a faithful and beloved brother. Paul had clearly forgiven him for his wrongdoing, and he was urging Philemon to do the same. We are going to have disagreements. We are going to have personality conflicts. We are going to have even arguments from time to time. We're not always going to get along. But in those times when we don't, we need to make sure that we can forgive one another. There's no room in a body of believers for holding grudges and being bitter. And so as we sum up this letter, the bottom line is this. Christians are not meant to live in isolation. We are meant to live with one another in the body of Christ. And that begins when you make a connection to Christ. Remember the, the key verse in this letter, that in all things he, that is Jesus, might have the preeminence. And so I'm asking you this morning, does Jesus Christ have preeminence in your life? Have you by faith turned and repented from your sins and trusted in him so that he is now your top priority? That's where it begins. There's no talk of how to get along with one another. There's no talk of partnering in ministry until we first come to faith in Jesus Christ and he is preeminent. Then secondly, having done that, we expect and encourage, even as the New Testament does, that you are connected to a local body of believers called the church. There are many people in our day, we've got many of them on our rolls, who have said yes to Jesus, but they have no desire to be part of a church. And I don't see how you can read the New Testament and come to that conclusion. Because the New Testament church, it's all over there. And so you need to be not only connected to Christ through faith, but you need to con be connected to a local body of believers. You need to join a local body, not just be a spectator, but you need to serve alongside other believers in a local church. And then in doing that, you need to be connected to other believers. You need to partner in ministry with other people. And one of the main, main ways we do that here is through small groups, through Sunday school or life groups. You say, well, I don't, I don't need a small group. I can read the Bible on my own. I acknowledge that you can read the Bible on your own, and you should. But we all need one another. I hope I've made that clear today. That even this great apostle Paul was not alone in gospel ministry, but he was surrounding himself with other people for mutual encouragement and support and to blend their giftedness together for the cause of the gospel. And then we are connected to the community and beyond. That's where our evangelism comes in. Who's your one? We're not just to connect to Christ and connect to one another, but we're to reach out and connect to others. All of these things are essential as we partner in ministry, that we do this together and encourage one another along the way. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for including us, not only in your family, adopting us into your family. 
but including us in ministry. I mean, you could have, you could have shared the gospel without us, but you've chosen to use us as the means of sharing the gospel. And so I pray today that we would, we would recognize one another, that we would see that there are many other people with the same goal and the same desires, and that is to advance the kingdom of God. And so I pray that we would encourage one another, that we would pray for one another. And then in those times when, when something goes awry, that we would be quick to forgive one another because you have forgiven us. May we be good partners in ministry that you might receive the glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.